Welcome to the First Pulpit Podcast Guest Speaker Series. Over the next several weeks, we are blessed to have pastors from all over the country preach God's Word. You will be greatly blessed as these men open the Bible and challenge your faith as you grow in the Lord. Well, good morning. What a tremendous, tremendous turnout on the Sunday after Christmas. That is a testimony uh, to you as a church and a great encouragement uh, to your pastor. I do great being, bring you greetings from the Abilene Baptist Church in Augusta, Georgia. We have the, I guess, the distinction of being older than the United States of America, founded in 1774, and uh, excited about being here this morning. I served for several years in the Columbus, Ohio area as a church planter uh, there in the Delaware, Ohio area. And so during those days, we grew to love Skyline Chili. And so I was telling Bob before the service that the very first thing, even before I checked into the hotel last night, I stopped by Skyline, got me a three-way, two conies, took it back to the hotel. And so I am fueled up and I am well-rested this morning. Amen? And so I'm excited to be here. Thank you for how you have loved and taken care of your pastor. Uh, We love Brent. We love Joy. We've been praying for them uh, these last couple of months. And how you have ministered to them, how you have encouraged them is a testimony to you and your church. And again, showing up this morning uh, on this day, again, is a tremendous, tremendous encouragement to any pastor. If you've got your Bibles with you this morning, if you will, turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19 and verse number 27. And as you are making your way there, William Whiting Borden, his friends called him Bill, was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He was a blue blood. His parents were descendants of British aristocracy. His father made a fortune in real estate in Chicago before he made a second fortune in the silver mines out in Colorado. By the time Bill reached 21 years of age, he was already worth $1 million. That's the equivalent of $40 million in today's money. And so he was young, he was good-looking, he was wealthy, he was well-educated. He could have done anything, gone on to be anything. He could have risen to heights unparalleled in society. But in 1912, at the age of 25, he did two things that made the headlines. First of all, he gave away his entire fortune. Half of it he gave to the Lord's work here in the United States and the other half to mission works overseas. And then second, he surrendered to God's call to be a foreign missionary, selling first of all to Egypt to learn Arabic with the intention of going on to reach a then unknown group of Muslims in the interior of China that we now know as the Uyghurs. And so for many folks in the media and in society, it seemed like such a colossal waste, especially when they discovered that not long after arriving in Cairo, Bill contracted meningitis and died the week before his mother showed up to see him. So people ask, why would he throw away everything? Why would he give up his wealth, his future, and even his life? He had it all and he gave it up for what? And that's really at the heart of the question that Peter asked Jesus in Matthew 19, And verse 27, if you will look at it, Peter says, See, we have left all and followed you, therefore what shall we have? What will we get? What 
will there be for us? As I was flying out yesterday from the Augusta airport, across my Facebook timeline, there came a meme uh, that reminded me of what Jim Elliott, again, a martyr who gave his life trying to reach the Huarani Indians in interior Ecuador said. Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And so that is the tension that we sense and see here in this passage. So out beside verse 27, would you just mark a right problem? Just write problem there in the margins of your Bible. What makes a man like Bill Borden tick? What makes a man like that give up everything to follow what he believes is God's will for his life? What does he get out of it? What, what is the ROI on his tremendously costly investment? Or to put it even more personally and plainly, what do we get out of serving Jesus? That's really at the question that Peter asked immediately after watching and hearing Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler. You know the story. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they tell about the time when a very wealthy, influential young man came and he asked Jesus, what good thing did he have to do in order to have eternal life? And since Jesus knew that his gold, gold was his God, he loved his money, Jesus said, you're going to have to give all your money away to the poor. Divest yourself completely because you cannot give your life to Jesus with your fingers crossed and hidden behind your back. You cannot come to Christ and having had tucked away something in some hidden part of your life that you think nobody knows about and still expect to be saved and go to heaven when you die. That's why Matthew 19 verse 22 the Bible says, but when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. In a February 2018 post on marketwatch.com, entitled, The Dark Reason So Many Rich People Are Miserable Human Beings. How would you like to write that title? Katie Hill wrote, It is no picnic having a massive bank balance. And she goes on to write, New research shows the richer we get, the less happy we become. And she was commenting on a new study that had come out that showed that once people reach a certain level of household income, 105000 in the U.S. and 95000 globally, she said more income tended to be associated with reduced life satisfaction and a lower level of well-being. And here's what she boiled it all down to. More money, more wants. More wants, more worries. And sadly, that's what we see in the life of the rich young ruler. His story shows us the power that money has over our lives. Now, don't miss this. Are y'all still there this morning? Raise your hand. Don't miss this. The problem with this young man wasn't that he had money. His problem was that his money had him. He wasn't willing to give up his gold and his life of luxury so that he could take hold of God and receive the gift of eternal life. In other words, he was trusting in his bank account and his balance sheets and not in the God who owns the world and everything in it. And so here's the truth that I want you to get this morning. Either Jesus separates us from the world or the world separates us from Jesus. That's why Jesus' answer to the incredulous response of his disciple was so startling. Look in verse 24. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. 
You see, those disciples, they lived in a day much like the day that you and I live in today, where they saw that the world sees that if you are rich, if you're wealthy, if you're well-to-do, then that has to be a sign of God's blessing upon your life. God has approved you and God has accepted you. But what I need you to know this morning is that what Jesus said in that day is still true in this day. Salvation is not a reward for the rich. Salvation is the gracious gift for anybody and everybody who will humbly receive it by faith. That's why Peter just blurted out in verse 27, we've given up everything for you. What are we going to get out of it? Now, before we're too hard on Peter, can we just admit here this morning that even though we might not have said it out loud, there has been those times in our lives where we have thought the exact same things. That's the exact same way we feel sometimes. You know, when, when I was growing up in church, we sang a song that went like this. It pays to serve Jesus. It pays every day. It pays every step of the way. And we know that is true, but a lot of times it feels like that pay is way overdue, doesn't it? Our life seems to be filled with frustration and fatigue and failure and not joy and blessing and fulfillment. And so we're left asking the same question that Peter asked. What's in it for me? What am I going to get out of this? How am I going to get all this treasure that you've been promising I would receive if I would just follow you? And so that's why I love how Jesus responded to Peter, because he did not rebuke him. He simply reaffirmed his faith, and he redirected his focus to his coming kingdom. Look in verse 28. So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Out beside verse 28, would you jot down, write down the word promise, promise. Now, this was a very specific promise to a very specific group of people at a very specific time the 12 apostles, and the millennial kingdom. But don't, I do think that there is an application for us here this morning who are followers of Jesus Christ because the Bible teaches that when Jesus Christ returns, we will rule and reign with him in glory. Over in Revelation chapter 5, verse 10, we're told how Jesus' blood has redeemed every tribe and tongue and people and nation and has made, quote, us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Now, I'm sure that I don't understand everything that's involved there, but I do know this, that as members of the Messiah's royal family, part of the promise of having treasure in heaven will mean that we will get to rule and reign with him over the millennial kingdom. But on what grounds does Jesus grant us this tremendous privilege? Look in verse 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Out beside verses 29 and 30, write the word principle. Because here in these verses, Jesus establishes the principle of rewards for the Christians. And here's what Jesus says. Present sacrifice results in eternal privilege. Over in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 10 verse 30 specifically, he adds this, 
He says that we will receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come, eternal life. Now, obviously, we don't want to press this too far and we don't want to take this too literally because who in here this morning wants to have, uh, what, a hundred wives or two hundred brothers? I have two brothers, one wife, enough. Can I say amen? And of course, some of the prosperity preachers, they, they take this and they, they use it to try to raise money and they'll say, well, if you'll send me $1,000, if you will sow a seed of $1,000 into this ministry, then God's going to give you back 100000 And I always want to say, hold I tell you what, I got a better deal. You send me the $1,000 and I'll let you keep the 100000 Can I get an amen? But I know that that even can't be right because if that's what Jesus really had in mind, then the problem with the rich young ruler wasn't that he loved his money more than God. It's simply that he didn't realize a good investment opportunity when it was staring him in the face. No, Jesus' point here is that there are both eternal and earthly blessings, both here and the hereafter, that are exponentially greater than whatever it might cost to follow Jesus Christ. Whatever the persecutions that we might endure in this life, whatever things we might have to leave behind, whatever things we have to give up or go without, Jesus himself will more than make it up to us. It might not feel like it pays to follow Jesus Christ now, but Jesus promises that in God's good time and in his perfect way, it's going to be better than anything you or I could ever dream or imagine. And that brings us to the parable. Look down there beginning in verse 1 in Matthew chapter 20. Let's just read the parable together. The Bible says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them out into his vineyard and he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And said to them, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, you will receive. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those who who were hired about the eleventh hour came, they each received a denarius. But when they first came, but when the first came rather, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise received each a denarius. When they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things, or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first, and the first last. For many are called, 
but few are chosen. Did you notice how verse 16 connects back to the last part of chapter 19? The first will be last, and the last will be first. So what lessons can we learn from this parable? Because you know, a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And so what can we learn? Here's three little things and we'll be done for this day. Number one, everything belongs to God. Look in verse 15 of chapter 20. Jesus said, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? It all belongs to him, right? It all belongs to him, right? So the question is, who's the landowner? Well, it's the Lord Jesus. He's the one. John says, all things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. Paul said, all things were created through him and for him. You know, sometimes I I hear people say something like this. Hey, pastor, I own 15 acres off of Baldwin Road. It's mine. I bought it 30 years ago. I just made the last payment. It's mine. It belongs to me. Nope. You're going to die. And then, whose will those things be? Somebody else is going to come along and buy it just like you did. And they're going to pay on it for 30 years just like you did. And if Jesus tarries... It'll go to somebody else. We don't own anything. Everything we have belongs to him. The house that you live in, the car that you drove to church in today, the clothes that you've got on, the food that you ate, even the air that you breathe, everything belongs to him. The earth is his, the sun is his, the moon is his, the stars are his, the galaxies are his, the solar system is his. It all belongs to him. Every bird that flies, every fish that swims, every beast that crawls or squirms or slithers, it all belongs to him. And here's the point. What right do I have, what right do you have to tell him what to do with what belongs to him? Number one, it all belongs to him. Number two, everything God does is right. Everything God does is right. You know, over the course of my 47 years, I know I don't look that way. I know I don't look 47, I look 35, but... All those early church deacons meetings. Can I get an amen? But in my 47 years here on this planet, man, I've known some good men. Now, I've known some who were just okay. But I've known some good men. The the church that I'm blessed to pastor now, I'm just telling you, it's like Glenn Estee first. I'm, I'm just telling you, there are men in there that are some of the godliest, greatest men some of the godliest women in that church as well, people that I would trust my life with, people that I would entrust my ministry, my family to. But I need you to understand, good men, genuine men, men of character and integrity, but even the best of men are still just men at best. A man as wise as Solomon can still make a bad decision. A man as faithful as Paul can still mess up. A man as as courageous as Peter can still blow it, but not Jesus. Jesus is always right. 
He is perfect in his humanity. He is perfect in his deity. He is the perfect and sinless son of God. Look in chapter 20, verse 4. And they said, said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. Which is why he said in verse 13, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Pontius Pilate said about Jesus, I find no fault in him. The thief on the cross said, this man has done nothing wrong. The Roman soldier who crucified Jesus said, truly, this was a righteous man. God the Father himself said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The Bible says there is no darkness in him. Everything he does is right it all belongs to him and then lastly number three everyone who comes to him can be saved those 11th hour workers those were the ones that nobody else wanted they were the outcast and the rejects these these were the crippled and the blind and the lame these were the ones that really couldn't do much work that's why the fact that the landowner hired them and then gave them a full day's wages for just one hour's work is such a powerful picture of the grace of God. W.A. Criswell. Most folks think that those initials stand for names. On his birth certificate, it was just W.A. It was a Texas, Oklahoma thing back in the early 1900s. He pastored First Baptist Dallas for 50 years. He was saved when he was a 10-year-old boy in a revival meeting in southwest Oklahoma. And God used him to pastor and lead churches in Kentucky and Texas. Countless thousands, tens of thousands of people were saved under the ministry of W.A. Criswell. He took a tremendous stand for the truth of the Word of God, the inerrancy of the Bible. He wrote a book, Why I Preach the Bible as Literally True. God used him in amazing ways. Ty Cobb, on the other hand, Ty Cobb, the great baseball player, played a record 3,033 games, set all sorts of other records, many of which still stand to this day. Lived a rough and a rugged lifestyle. We would call it a riotous lifestyle. As he lay dying of bone cancer in Emory Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia, he was visited by a local pastor by the name of Dr. John Richardson. And Dr. Richardson came by and he said, I want to talk to you about your soul. And Ty Cobb said, they've just given me a sedative. Can you come back at another time? And so... They read some scripture with him, they prayed, and they left. Dr. Richardson said when he came back a couple of days later, he could tell that God had been working on Ty Cobb's heart. Because when he shared the gospel with him, how all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and how God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, and If you'll repent of your sin and surrender your life to Jesus, Jesus will come into your heart, come into your life, forgive you of your sins, give you the hope and the promise of eternal life and and a home in heaven. And when he explained that to Ty Cobb, Ty Cobb, right there on his deathbed, gave his heart to Jesus. He died just a few weeks later. But before he died, he told Dr. Richardson, He said, quote, I feel the strong arms of God underneath me. 
It's wonderful to be able to pray. I want you to tell others that they should not wait until a crisis comes to learn how to pray. The Apostle Paul became a Christian there on the road to Damascus and served Jesus for the rest of his life. He was whipped, shipwrecked, stoned, thrown in prison, finally beheaded for his faith in Jesus Christ. But that thief on the cross, he was a violent criminal, most likely a murderer. No respect for people or their property. He had lived a sinful, reprobate life, and he died by capital punishment for his crimes. But there on that cross, in the last desperate minutes of his life, he looked to Jesus who was hanging next to him, and he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom." And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Is that fair? Is it fair for a thief who never won anybody to Jesus? Is it fair for a thief who never gave an offering? Is it fair for a thief who never even attended church, never even said but one prayer in his entire life, but was saved in those last few minutes of his life? Is it fair that he gets to go and enjoy the same heaven that the apostle Paul gets to enjoy? It's not a matter of being fair. It's a matter of grace. That's what this parable is all about. If you got in at 6 o'clock, praise God. If you didn't get in until 11 o'clock, praise God. Because the most important thing is to just get in. Thank you for tuning in to the First Pulpit Podcast. We trust the message was an encouragement to you and to help in your faith journey. If you would like to learn more about having a personal relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, please contact us through our website at www.fbcge.org. Thanks again for tuning in, and God bless.